Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lost Teams podcast. I am your co-host Anthony Cerdelli. With me today, as always, is my fellow co-host Andrew Lennox, and we have a special guest today, uh, someone who definitely, I think, helped make our podcast possible by creating his own website that is now nearly its uh, at its tenth anniversary. Andy Crossley. Andy, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Hey guys, great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on the pod. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, your website has been uh, indispensable to us for our research and uh, our listeners will will definitely have heard us cite it at the beginning of many episodes because you've done such a great job, just <laughs> such a wide array of teams throughout it's, professional sports. It's very impressive. It's truly amazing. I've literally, I think, used your website for every uh, team that I've researched. So I appreciate it. Cool. Well, when you guys get rich and famous off this podcast, you know where to send the royalty checks. Yeah, for sure. We'll keep you. We'll keep you in mind for that. So, so Andy, you're going to tell us a little bit today about the the. You told us the first team you ever did for this website. What team is that? Yeah. So, um, the first the first post was like ten years ago. I don't exactly remember why I picked this team to start with, other than it was just a cool story. But um, team called the Pittsburgh Maulers, which was a football team in the United States Football League. That only lasted for one year back in uh, the spring of 1984, but, but there was a really interesting, USFL was a really interesting league and it was a really interesting time in, in, uh, in this case, sort of the Pittsburgh sports scene. And it was a team that I'd always, I sort of had vague memories of from, from being a kid and watching USFL on ESPN when ESPN was like a brand new thing. And, um, and so we started with them. That is pretty cool. And, and I mean, the thing that blew me away as we get started was the, the owner of the team. I, I recognize the, the name of that owner and, and a, a pretty, um, pretty legitimate owner and, and uh, kind of legacy he's left in professional sports. Yeah. So the owner of the team was a guy named Edward DeBartolo Sr. And uh, was one of the wealthiest men in America um, in, in the 80s. He was a shopping mall magnate. And his son is probably the, you know, for people outside of Pittsburgh, his son actually might have the more recognizable name, Edward DeBartolo Jr., who owned the San Francisco 49ers um, during their dynasty era in the 80s and 90s. Um, but it was really the dad's family fortune that, that funded that. Um, and uh, the year before, 1983, a rival league to the NFL had started up, the United States Football League, which you know, today is thought of as Donald Trump's football league because he owned the New Jersey Generals team. But it was really a really fun league, very like rebellious league. And one of the things that they did that that got a lot of attention is they raided the NFL draft for the three years they existed, 1983, 84, and 85. And they also um, raided NFL rosters of, of players whose contracts had elapsed. And the NFL did not have free agency at that time. So um, players were really kind of stuck um, without free agency in terms of their bargaining power until a new league came along that they could leverage for better contracts or simply just leave the NFL and go play there. DeBartolo got the, the first, the USFL played its first season in 83 and, when it, came, and it was fairly successful. Um, and when they lined up for 84, they went into expansion mode. And the very first expansion franchise went to Pittsburgh and it went to Edward DeBartolo Sr. And it caused a huge dust up with the NFL, which was already very, you know, 
uh, already giving the USFL the side eye in a lot of respects, but now they had a family that was going to have the father owning a team in the USFL and the son ordering, owning a team in the NFL. And so it seemed like everybody's secrets were going to be on the table and nobody knew what they could say in an owner's meeting, for example, without having the rival. And this went for the USFL owners as well as the NFL owners. No one could know what they could say. Um, but uh, because the DeBartolos were so wealthy, it was a huge coup for the USFL to be able to bring him into the league. And one of the things they did early on was make a big splash. They had the number one overall draft pick in the 1984 draft. It was held ahead of the NFL draft. And they plucked uh, the Heisman Trophy winner, Mike Rozier, who's a running back from University of Nebraska. They signed him to be the, the big star for uh, the Pittsburgh Maulers in their expansion season in 1984. Didn't he, uh, it, didn't yeah. he sign like right after the Orange Bowl, or they say even before the Orange Bowl? Well, so he had played it, yeah. So the USFL held, held their draft in January. Rozier had played in the Orange Bowl, um, which I believe was the national championship game that year, Nebraska okay. and Miami. Mm -hmm. And and he, missed, he, he very quickly signed a multi-million dollar contract with the Maulers, like within a matter of days afterwards. <laughs> you know, it seems a little bit of a complex deal to get done if you're not doing it while you're still an amateur player. Yeah. Um, some people looked askance at that. Um, but the, react, the, the final, you know, sort of analysis was of it was that he ended up, you know, in the USFL and it was the second mm -hmm. year in a row that the USFL had snagged the Heisman Trophy winner. Um, the year before they had signed Herschel Walker as an underclassman. Oh, yeah. And actually they would end up doing it three years in a row because the next year they got Doug Flutie from my hometown of Boston. The other thing that was sort of interesting, uh, an interesting dynamic about the team was that DeBartolo had a sort of, he, he was from Youngstown, Ohio, but he had this um, little Pittsburgh sports empire, but he had all of like the worst teams in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so you had the Steelers who'd come off all their Super Bowls in the seventies and still had Chuck Knoll and Terry Bradshaw and Jack Lambert and all these guys. Right. Um, they were on a little bit on the decline, but still, you know, w still winning division titles and still, you know, getting the AFC championship games. Um, he didn't own them. Uh, and you had the Pittsburgh Pirates who'd won the World Series a few years earlier. He didn't own them. <laughs> what he owned was the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were uh, really a, a, a sad sack franchise at that yeah. time. Um, you know, getting crowds of three or 4,000 people a night in the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. And he also had... Um, he also had the Pittsburgh spirit of the major indoor soccer league, um, which that must, that must have been a moneymaker. <laughs> well, you see, it's, it wasn't, yeah. um, no surprise there, but at the yeah. time, indoor soccer was actually a really hot sport in oh, some okay. cities. Um, and there was a few cities where, um, the teams, the teams in the major indoor soccer league were actually outdrawing NBA teams. No uh, kidding. In the, same, in the same arena on a, on a per night basis um, during the winter, they played a similar, similar winter schedule to the NBA. Sure. So in Cleveland, the Cleveland force would get, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 people a night and outdraw the Cavaliers for a season in Kansas city. 
the Kansas City Comets would get 14 or 15,000 a night and actually helped drive the Kansas City Kings NBA team out of the city to Sacramento. Wow. Um, now in Pittsburgh, <laughs> uh, in the winter of 1983-84, when the Maulers were starting up, uh, the Spirit were also out drying the Penguins. Um, oh, man. But that... But that said more about the Penguins than it did about the Spirit, because the Spirit were not one of the top drying indoor soccer teams. They were they were all right, you know, and they were losing yeah. a lot of money. So he had basically a money losing um, indoor soccer team, and he had this um, NHL team that was really at a low ebb. So do you think if the Pittsburgh Penguins didn't draft Mario Lemieux, they would have left town eventually? Uh, it, I mean, who knows, but yeah. uh, they were rumored to be leaving town for years, you know, yeah. throughout the 1970s. And, and, and that, this wasn't necessary. This wasn't DeBartolo's fault. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't, it, it was under DeBartolo that they did draft Lemieux and that they, and they became that sort of super club that they did. Mm-hmm. And, and before he passed away, he, he was able to hoist the Stanley cup, you know, put the team, the team that his staff, and, and team had put together. But one of the things that's fascinating about all this is just, um, you know, the Bartolo had two number one overall draft picks that year. One was Mike Rozier in the USFL, who's almost completely forgotten now, if you're, unless you're, a, you know, in Pittsburgh, unless football. you're a complete kind of sports nerd, you know, he's remembered, I, by, he's remembered as a legendary college football player and a kind of mm-hmm. okay Houston Oilers running back who had 1000 yard season in the NFL. But in Pittsburgh, probably he's not particularly well remembered. Um, but he got, you know, a $3 million contract that year from DeBartolo as the number one pick in the USFL. Well, he also had the number one overall pick in the NHL draft that year. And he signed Lemieux, who everyone recognized was a sort of generational talent. But because of what the NHL was in those days, Lemieux got a contract that was a tiny fraction of that amount. And of course, Lemieux became a giant, um, right. you know, won these Stanley cups became like one of the most important figures in sort of Pittsburgh's cultural history. But when it started out, Rozier was the big deal. Huh. Um, even though, even though the team that Rozier played for would end up only playing about four months um, before going out of business. And not to take us too far off track, but Andrew and I are both big hockey guys, but I mean, even, even before, I think when Lemieux took over as a uh, part owner and owner of the Peng- or owner of the Penguins, they were almost going to move, if I remember correctly, like pre-Crosby. And like the there were rumors about it maybe in like the early two thousands. Um, I mean, even then when they were pretty crappy, <laughs> they were trying to get a new rink built, as I recall, and it yeah. wasn't going well. Yeah, you guys may know may know better than I, but but that building was fairly old, and you know. The so green yeah. at a certain point was old, and obviously, like you know, considerations around building and public money for buildings are often the things that motivate whether teams are on the move or not, and not so much whether they're still really popular <laughs> with their fans or yeah. or um, or any or, or whether they're winning games or not. So it may be that you know, even at a time when they're perceived by other cities as being really successful, that they were potentially on the block because the building was old, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so the Maulers, they get Rozier and they kind of snake some players in the, uh, and that from the NFL, that 
that also that dynamic that we we've spoken about in a few episodes from from different hockey teams and basketball teams and, and football teams that have been in competitor leagues that's just such an interesting because those leagues always go into it like we're just gonna take no prisoners approach and it's almost like they they spend themselves into a it kind of into a bad place right off the bat in an attempt to kind of go big or go home it feels like well they did then um because the USFL wasn't the first league to try and do this in the seventies, there had been the world football league that had done pretty much the same thing um, with less success. And, and I think the model for those, what for those, those leagues were um, the American football league, which had done mm-hmm. the same thing in the sixties and successfully forced a merger. Right. Um, and then you had, even in the seventies, you had leagues like the world hockey association and the American basketball association, just did the same thing. They raided the established league for talent, um, lost a huge pile of money, um, but ultimately succeeded in forcing mergers. Mm-hmm. And, and so some people would see that as, you know, um, sort of side doors for their cities into the NFL or opportunities to maybe leverage the value of a franchise there's all diff- all sorts of different reasons. You know, some, sometimes people just wanted an NFL team and they weren't going to get one, and this was the closest they could get. You know, there's still people starting up these rival football leagues today, but no, but people no longer. Uh, you know, you got the World League of American Football and the um, the X, the two versions of the XFL and the Alliance of American Football that have all started up with a lot of money behind them. But these those leagues, the last twenty or thirty years, if you've noticed. That none of them try and go after NFL talent anymore. Yeah. Um, what now? What they want to do is try and force the NFL to decide that they need something like the NBA G League. Like they want to become like the basically a, a sanctioned developmental league. And mm-hmm. the NFL just is like doesn't <laughs> no. seem want nothing to really interested. This. Like they're like we have college football. That is the minor leagues. We don't need. Why would we want this? And um, once in a while, you get some CFL guys coming down too. So, I mean, um, the, the NFL they had their own; they did have it for a while. NFL Europe and the World League of American Football; those were owned by the NFL. That was their leagues, and they they they're like, yeah, we we don't really need it. Even <laughs> back good, in the day, some good players started there. You know, Jake Delhomme and Kurt Warner and guys like that played in those leagues, but they don't really need it. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even back in after World War II, we 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 covered the LA Dons. Uh, from the All American Football Conference, that uh, same thing. I mean, they they they. It sounded really similar to to what you were saying about the Maulers. They got a lot of college talent right off the bat, and if not for the uh, at one time powerful Cleveland Browns, that league might have existed for a lot longer. Um, it also like, didn't take the dollars back. Like it didn't take the dollars back then to pull some of these guys away. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, Rozier got a a big contract by the term, but you know, by the terms of that era. But, you know, a lot of these guys, especially if they're like, you know, linemen, um, you know, li- you know, linebackers, defensive backs, like they were like more like middle class guys then. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you might be offering a guy $150,000 a year instead of $110,000 a year to come to come play. Um, you know, whereas now all of now every role player is a multi-million dollar investment. So it would be hard to do now, but that was kind of like one of the last windows of opportunity where where you would see somebody challenge that because you still had guys that were paying for 
playing for small dollars. And if you look at some of the other guys that team signed, you know, after Rozier, there wasn't a lot of sizzle. <laughs> like the quarterback was a guy named Glenn Carano, who had been a very, like a seven year backup quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys who had barely. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and, and actually what he's, the most interesting thing, he didn't play particularly well in the USFL. The thing that's interesting about him is he's Gina Carano's dad. Oh. From, from the Mandalorian and the MMA mm-hmm. fighter. Oh, okay. Um, that's that's his sort of his probably the the thing that he's that best known for um, today. Um, one of the great things about that team, though, it's super interesting, is um, so they played in Three River Stadium, which I was, was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, which is where the Steelers played and the Pirates played, and it was a big deal that like DeBartolo had even gotten a lease there because the Steelers mm-hmm. didn't want them and he didn't want the USFL in town at all. And uh, the year before, <laughs> talking about players jumping leagues, the year before, uh, the Steelers were kind of in decline. It was the end of their dynasty. Still still good, kind of like the Patriots are today. Um, and Terry Bradshaw hurt his elbow. And, and it was there basically missed almost the entire 1983 season. So the fall of 83, as the Maulers are kind of getting their business together, planning to make their debut in February of 1984 in the Spring League. So the Steelers turned to a backup quarterback who'd been sitting on their bench for about six or seven years by this point named Cliff Stout. Mm. And Cliff Stout actually led them to a 9-2 and two start. Um, but he threw a ton of interceptions and the fans never really had a lot of faith in him. And then late in the season, he lost three games in a row and Bradshaw had to come back like at the end for his final couple NFL games. And the team kind of eked out another division championship and got into the playoffs and didn't really do anything, but the fans hated Cliff Stout. Um, you know, he, he throws too many picks and it's not what we're accustomed to. And, um, really kind of unfair because this is a lifelong backup who came in and basically helped the team go 10 and six and win their division. But as soon as the season ends, Cliff Stout signs with the USFL Oh, to become the starting quarterback for the Birmingham Stallions. And wouldn't you know it, um, the Pittsburgh Maulers home opener in February, 1984 is against the Birmingham Stallions <laughs> at the Three River Stadium. So it sells out. You know, like 50-something thousand people in the snow uh, in Pittsburgh. But they're not there to see Mike Rozier. They're there to hit Cliff Stout with snowballs. That is so good. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, So uh, in some ways, it's a great debut of the franchise, a sold-out NFL stadium. Um, But they lose. (laughs) Uh, As they would continue to lose, they end up going 3-15 and that year. Um, and two of their wins were against the only other horrible team in the league that was also three and 15. It's a little bit misleading. They actually had a pretty good defense. A lot of their losses were really close, but it was, it was a bad year. Rozier was dinged up coming out of college and was never, was never healthy and was just ordinary. Um, they fired their head coach in mid season, you know, finished last place. And after that first sellout, they never had more than 25,000 people in the mm. place again. And, And um, at the end of the year, the other owners in the USFL or a group of them led by Donald Trump 
voted to switch from their spring football model to moving to a fall season in 1986, two years later. And that immediately screwed a group of franchise owners whose USFL teams were in NFL cities. Oh, I'm sure. Because now you've just, and if you're Edward DeBartolo, you just spent $6 million to buy this expansion franchise barely 12 months earlier, then lost, you know, several million more running the first season. And now they've told you that they're changing the whole plan of the league and they're going to play in the fall. So he was just like, I'm out. Did they play games on Saturdays or what? Uh, well, it never got that far. <laughs> the whole league went out of business before oh, they tried okay. it. Um, you know, the, the, basically, the, some people would say that the plan was less to actually play in the fall than it was to sue the NFL for antitrust violations, mm-hmm. which is a different story for a different day. But basically, they ended up going to court and suing the NFL and winning a um, billion-dollar lawsuit for antitrust violations except that when it went to the jury for the award, the jury awarded them $1. <laughs> oh, um, and because it's an antitrust suit, the de- damages are tripled in an antitrust suit. So they got $3. Oh, boy. Uh, oh. And so that was the end of the USFL after three seasons in 1986. But by that time, the Maulers were long gone. You know, they, they, they existed for a total of 18 games over the course of about four months. And they, and they closed up. Um, and the same month that they closed up business in October 1984, Mario Lemieux de- debuted with the Pittsburgh Penguins and started his Hall of Fame career and revived that that team as the sort of lesser of the lesser of the two of DeBartolo's two, you know, bonus baby number one draft picks that year. There was kind of a uh, that classic kind of coaching mutiny disagreement during that season as well, right? Where the coach was replaced because he, he wouldn't play certain players. Correct. My understanding of it, which is a little vague, but is that um, the owner told him to replace um, Glenn Carano, the quarterback, Gina's dad, in the middle of a game. Um, He didn't do it. And, um, you know, kind of got called to the carpet and and, um, whether he resigned or was fired, you know, that was the end of the road for that guy. Yeah. That story about the the first game selling out, though, there there was never enough spite in the stadium after that game for it to be another sellout. There's only three cities, I think, maybe four that that could happen. And I'm surprised it was Pittsburgh, but Philly, Boston, I would say probably Pittsburgh and New York, where that would happen. Well, you know, it's interesting because we just, you know, the Patriots here just re-signed Cam Newton. Mm-hmm. And that was fairly controversial. Much to the chagrin of Felger and Maz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh our local top rated sports talk radio guys. Um, you know, that was controversial, obviously, because he did not acquit himself that well last year. But think about it. You know, um, you know Cam Newton's a former NFL most valuable player. Um, came here, um, didn't have a great year. The Pats um, did not make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um now he was cheap, but but again, um, you know he's also playing in like you like you alluded to Anthony in like a very vicious like sports media market, unforgiving. Yeah. Um, Did he get a one year deal? Is that correct? Uh, that was his first year. I don't know what the extension he just signed. Yeah. Okay. I think but it was one but more. he 
but you know, as much as people didn't necessarily like the idea of bringing him back, um, he's not, he's not hated here with what seems to be the level of vitriol that was directed at Cliff Stout <laughs> in Pittsburgh. And Cliff Stout was a guy who had, who'd never had a shot before. You know, he, he was a low round draft pick yeah. who had managed to kind of stick around for six years, barely playing. Um, and then he starts you off nine and two and you still win the division and get in the playoffs. Now he had some really bad games. If I'm not mistaken, I think he threw five interceptions in the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving day game that year, which is obviously on national television. Right. Um, but uh, you know, I think a lot of people today would look at a quarterback like that and you'd be, you'd be like, this is a Cinderella story. <laughs> right. Right. You know, Whereas if you look at like Newton, who's in a similar situation in the sense that he's replacing the unreplaceable guy like Stout was with Bradshaw, mm-hmm. you know, Newton came in with credentials. He'd played in the Super Bowl. You know, he'd been, he'd put up the big numbers. He'd been a number one draft pick. It, it's like the expectations for him are so much higher and the like 24 hour news cycle is so much more vicious. And yet it seems incredible that uh, like you, Nobody, Cam Newton wouldn't show up here and ha- be pelted with ice balls. Yeah. <laughs> in, any, in any sort of like environment, that wouldn't right. happen. It, Maybe I, that speaks more to stadium security improvements than anything else. But like, I think there was, I, 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 whenever I hear these stories about Pittsburgh and Stout, I don't feel like I can quite appreciate the way Steelers fans came about that utter dislike of this guy. Yeah. It's, it's almost, I'm trying to think of a comparison for the Patriots. It's almost like if Brian Hoyer, ended up signing with an XFL team that then went and played in Gillette stadium against whatever XFL team fictional that Boston had. And then them selling out because they hated Brian Hoyer so much. <laughs> that's a, that's actually a, a perfect analogy, except that he, Brian Hoyer would have had to have been the starting quarterback for the past this year. Yeah. And, and won the division. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's a, that's a tough ask. <laughs> yeah. um, well, uh, is there anything else you want to add about the Maulers? If not, that was a pretty awesome recollection of, of, of a, a really interesting team. I have one question about the USFL. Um, yeah. At the height of the league, how many teams were in the league? So that year that Pittsburgh was in was the second year, 84, and they had 18, had 18 teams that year, which was the most that they – 18? 18, which was oh. the most that they ever had. Wow. Yeah. All That's right. surprising. Well, uh, I think that'll do it for the Pittsburgh Maulers. Uh, is there anything, Andy, you want to promote? Any uh, uh, Your website again, which is, of course, funwelllasted.net. Everyone should check it out. It's got so much information about <laughs> any team that really no longer exists in professional sports that you can think of. So strongly suggest you visit that site. And they just celebrated their 10th year anniversary. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks. We've got about 1,600 teams on there from – every imaginable wow. sport that's been played in North America um, and over 15,000 different images of, you know, old vintage game programs and you get all that stuff off stuff eBay. Like that, so. What's that? Do you get all that stuff off eBay? Um, a good amount of it. Um, some of, a lot of it sent in by um, sent it's a lot of it's fan submitted stuff. Nice. Yeah. I have this it was in my attic. Um, so yeah, 
And a lot of people are like, well, do you have like, people be like, they'll see a photo and they'll be like, I want to buy that. It's like, well, if I've got it, that's fine. Everything that we ever have here is sort of like always for sale. I don't have like a hoarder's house that's full of like stuff from floor to ceiling. <laughs> um, so a lot of those things have like kind of come and gone over the course of a decade now. Has um, anyone asked you for any Chicago Cats memorabilia? <laughs> Hello Kitty memorabilia, basically. <laughs> we have, well, um, yes. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Um, only because we had some and they have a very silly logo and uh oh yeah. And um we had a big pile of like old Chicago Cats press releases on like this color letterhead that was kind of cool. And those those were hanging around here for a couple of years and somebody somebody bought those last year. So so That's yeah, great. It, it's come up. Um yeah. <laughs> That's great. Right. Why, I love it. Why do, you, why do you ask, more importantly? We we actually did an uh, episode on the Chicago Cats. And it was... That's probably, what, it, our fifth or sixth one? Yeah, it seemed like a lot of... I mean, not not like we any had any concrete information, but it just seemed like a bunch of uh, rich businessmen in the 70s, high on cocaine. Like, should we start a soccer league? I think so. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get Bob yeah. Cousy. I think, yeah. I think, you know, that's... One of the things that's been interesting over the past 10 years is just like, um, I think the most interesting people to write in are the people who were there. So people who played for the teams, people who, um, who were family members. We get a lot of people who are doing like genealogy projects. And they're like, I'm trying to figure out if my dad played for this semi-pro basketball team in Michigan in 1965. Like yeah. we get a lot of you know, emails like that. That's cool. And, um, and so, so, uh, it can be tempting to look at all these teams, which sort of by definition have failed, you know, have moved right. or gone out of business or decided they had a stupid name and they changed it or whatever it was. It's very, it, it can be very easy to look at them and be, just be like super dismissive and be like, what a bunch of bozos these people must have been, you know, <laughs> but, but having worked in the industry, like in front offices for 10 years and also just like studied a lot of these teams as tempting as it is to do that. There's usually um, a lot of times there's just actually really smart people behind them. Um, and it's just a super hard business. And, and a lot of these ideas are like super entrepreneurial, like out of the box ideas. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes just something very, sometimes something very simple, but out of people's control has gone wrong. Like you're a hugely successful shopping mall magnate. You've dropped $10 million to buy an expansion team in a new football league and sign the reigning Heisman Trophy winner because you think spring football is a great idea. And then 12 months after you do that, a bunch of other people decide to switch it to the fall. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like, that's not his fault. No, <laughs> yeah, not at all. That's just the breaks, you know? And, right. And a lot so of that these... kind of stuff happens to a lot of people. And, um, and, and, and the people who actually are interested in the you know, lost teams, as you call them, are generally people who love them for one reason or other. The people who thought they were stupid um, don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting to try and get you know to the to the bottom of some of the stories and figure out more than just sort of like I don't know, I guess kind of scoffing at them mm -hmm. and actually kind of find out why they did this in the first place and what 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 went right as well as what went wrong. Yeah, and the, and the 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 other interesting thing that's kind of the point of our whole podcast is how they changed kind of the professional sports landscape and how how a lot of them still feel the effects from the uh, the I'm blanking out right now the federal baseball league back in the back in the 
in like 19, like or 1910s. I don't even remember the exact time, but it's the reason why the professional major league baseball has such a strong uh, kind of ownership over these players. And there haven't really been any competitors or our very first episode was about the LA blades who in their quest to become Los Angeles's first NHL team accidentally got the LA forum pretty much built <laughs> indirectly. It's like that stuff is so fascinating to us. And uh, we really thank you for coming on and, and telling us the story of, of the Maulers. Yeah, thank you so and, much. And, and all the work that you do uh, beyond that, just to, to tell the stories of all these other teams. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. Yeah, well, thank we're just, you. We're going to do our socials real quick. Uh, obviously, you can you follow me on Twitter at Delhi Tweets. It's D-E-L-L-I-T-W-E-E-T-S. Andrew, where can they find you? You can find me at A-W-L-E-N-N, A-W-L-N. And Andrew, if you, uh, Andy, if you want to be found, uh, where can you be found on, on uh, social media? I'm not social, so the best place to find <laughs> me is on the website itself at funwhileitlasted.net. Got it. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on. It was a fun episode, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.